Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Welcome to the lucky number 13 episode of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I am your co-host, Dr. Sharin Tofai, joining you on the West Coast in mostly sunny Los Angeles, California. And I'm Dr. Kevin L. Hayek coming to you from colorful Cleveland, Ohio, where we enjoy not just one, but four seasons. So we're in in the third of those seasons. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah, sure, Kevin. We'll talk again in about a month and see how colorful things are for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, for what it's worth, we are sure to have a colorful episode of Sage's Stories today as we have the pleasure of Dr. Gerald Freed, we call him Jerry, as our guest on the show. Another Sage's luminary, Dr. Freed hails from Montreal, Canada, where he is currently the Associate Dean of Education Technology and Innovation, as well as Director of the Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning at McGill University. Little known fact, I almost went to McGill for medical school. That's right. That's right. Yeah, thank you. He previously served as program director for general surgery and was a vice chair for surgical education at McGill. Indeed, education is clearly a passion of his and our astute listeners have heard his name announced multiple times as a mentor for several of our prior guests on Sage's Stories. He has served as president of the Canadian Association of General Surgery, the Central Surgical Association, and the James IV Association of Surgery, which was by the way, named after King James IV of Scotland, who supported the foundation of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. Of course, among many other titles, Dr. Freed was a former president of SAGES in 2013 to 2014. So welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Well, thank you. This is a great idea, and I'm happy to be included as part of it. Absolutely. Well, it is just a pleasure to have you on the show. And as Sharon mentioned, your name has come up a few times, and it's Great to finally let you share your side of the Sage's story. Uh, to start, we always like to hear a little about the background of our guests. Where did you grow up and what were some impactful moments along your journey in medicine and surgery? Well, I grew up in Montreal and so I've come back home for, uh, to practice and uh, did most of my education at McGill. It was um, one of the great steals to be able to go to a medical school that was ranked really in one of the top maybe 25 in the world and pay a tuition of about $700 a year Canadian in order oh my to gosh. go there. Oh my so, uh, so I guess I asked myself, why go elsewhere? Uh, I had a great education at McGill and then went on and did my residency in general surgery uh, at McGill, went on to Ohio State University to do a year of combined um, endoscopy and uh, gastrointestinal surgery. Did you say Ohio? Ohio. I think we heard Ohio there. It's the Ohio State University. Oh, the, the, you went to the. Yes, I did. And we can't can't go through a single stage of story without Ohio or Cleveland being mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, While while in Columbus, uh, it was uh, 
wonderful opportunity. I got to work, of course, with Dr. Zollinger, uh, who was still practicing then, and Dr. Ellison, Chris Ellison, and I were in the same year in residency. Wow, so and he's the friends, he's the uh, new uh, president of the American College, right? So that right. was your yeah yeah. So that that was a great thing. I, I got introduced to American College football uh, <laughs> in all its splendor, and I did six months of. Um, uh, gastro gastroenterology in that year, which was really uh, impactful in, in terms of um, convincing me of the role of endoscopy in the practice of GI surgery. When was that? What year was that? Uh, that was 1978 and 79. Um, wow. And uh, it that was, was before Kevin was born. I, I was born in 79. So that was a good year. <laughs> that was a good year. Yeah. So but, you it, know, it was great. Yeah. McGill is an amazing institution. Uh, I heard about it because my mentor, who is the reason why I'm in medicine and eventually in surgery, um, trained at McGill. And I only applied to McGill because of him and was so impressed because it seemed to me that for whatever reason, whether it's a Canadian thing or it's a McGill thing, like the clinical acumen of people going to school there and being trained there is so much superior. You're not just ordering blood tests and CT scans, you actually had what I felt was superior clinical knowledge of like physical exam and history. Did you feel like that was true? Well, obviously I trained a long time ago. There weren't <laughs> CT scans or, you know, <laughs> they were yeah. just inventing ultrasounds back then. But uh, unfortunately this is just an audio, but uh, if, if there was video here, you would see the background that uh, I have is the Sir William Osler Library. Wow, that's uh, and cool. uh, I hope those of you that come to Montreal for the Sages meeting this year will have a chance to come and visit it. It, it is it is spectacularly beautiful, and it's got a collection of ancient uh, books that uh, that would be hard to to match anywhere. But the reason I say that is that Sir William Osler was really the person that championed bedside teaching mm. and rounds as a teaching experience. So it's been very much part of our, uh, you know, of our heritage. And I, I like to still uh, think that we can make a lot of diagnoses at the bedside. We could confirm them by imaging, and we generally do that. But it's, it's very empowering, and it's, it's wonderful for students to, uh, to learn how to make decisions at the bedside. Um, and, you know, the thing about surgery is that you often have to make uh, difficult decisions within incomplete information because you're time constrained and maybe a trauma or a rapidly evolving patient. Right. So being able to have judgment uh, at the bedside, I think is a real attribute for any, uh, any surgeon. That's great. We, yeah. we, we stopped you at 1979, which was a great year. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we want to hear a little, little, I, I, I know we, as soon as we hear Ohio, it, it just gets Sharon really excited. So <laughs> My favorite we need to state. Stop. yeah. So uh so then, so you finished, so 78, 79 in, yeah. in Columbus. Then I went back to McGill as chief resident. So one of the great things that we had back then, and it would be a, something really good to emulate now, is that we were uh, we would select one of our fourth year residents and send them away for a year of clinical training in a department that had either, you know, a clinical practice or expertise that we didn't have. And then when they would come back and be a chief resident, be able to bring that knowledge and skill back and share it with the rest wow. of the people. Yeah. So I, I was very interested back then in endoscopy, as I said, and 
in, at McGill in those days, surgeons were not allowed to do endoscopy. There was no, nobody, not even, no colorectal surgeons, nobody doing endoscopy. So the opportunity to, uh, to do endoscopy, to learn endoscopy was, uh, you know, uh, really exciting for me. And that's why I went, uh, went away. I came back, I did my chief year. And um, I remember we came back, my wife was about six months pregnant with our daughter, Kimberly. And I remember her lying there. It was like a really hot uh, July day. We couldn't afford air conditioning. And she's lying in bed with this wonderful body image. And I said to her, Karen, what do you think about going to um, Galveston? Well, Texas. you know, she hit me with a frying pan. I <laughs> but sure enough, uh, finished my chief year. We got in our, our car and we drove down to Texas. And uh, we spent a couple of years uh, at Galveston, Galveston by the sea learning uh, GI physiology from Jim Thompson, who was really one of the uh, leaders in American GI surgery at the time, the president, uh, past president of the college and SSAT, American Surgical. And was so your I school got, uh, funding this? Uh, I got a, a travel award from um, the Royal College, um, but the, uh, Dr. Thompson uh, uh, had agreed to, to fund my salary for this research year. Uh, but then I, I wound up getting an extramural grant so that he didn't have to, and uh, it worked out very well. That's cool. And that was how many years you were there in Galveston? Uh, from 1980 80 to 82. Okay. And then I came back in 1982 to uh, McGill. And interestingly, about a week after, maybe a little, maybe a month after we moved back to Montreal, a hurricane hit Galveston, and the house oh or the gosh. place that we lived was totally destroyed. Wow. So we got out of That's town terrible. just in time. Yeah. That's terrible. There are no natural disasters in Montreal, right? It just snows a lot. <laughs> we, we had an ice storm. We once had an ice storm. <laughs> an ice really storm. That's natural. That's a natural disaster. <laughs> I would definitely yeah. call that. The, yeah. But, you know, you know, you can always uh, shovel snow. When we see some of the natural disasters, like in yeah. Florida, we appreciate that uh, it's not so bad. So you're, are you multilingual then? Um, I, I speak English reasonably well, and, <laughs> but I, I say certain you know, Canadian terms. I, I apologize for saying A and things like that. But Don't apologize. Yeah. yeah, this is not, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, speak, I speak fair French. Um, I wish I spoke better. I speak reasonably well in, in conducting my clinical practice, speaking to my patients, that vocabulary. I don't have the subtleties of the language that I wish I had to understand humor and you know go to a play and understand really the the, the richness of the language. Yeah, but the subtleties there. Uh, manage uh, well enough in Montreal or in France. So is medical care all in English then, mostly, or like? Um, you, well, you write your can, notes in English. Yes. Um, so the McGill uh, McGill is an English language university in Montreal. There is another. Um, French language university called the University of Montreal, where that has a medical school as well. And their medical school is, you know, instruction is in French, ours is in English. We recently opened up a French campus uh, outside of Montreal. And the students have the opportunity to write their exams in English or French, even at McGill. Wow. So, yeah, that's very But unique. our notes are generally, uh, I mean, we could write them in either, either language, but generally most people write their notes in English. That's very unique. Um, we're going to go and in, dive into all the surgical stuff because that's what we love. But before we do that, really quickly, so um, we know 
what a fantastic person you are in terms of surgical education and mastery, et cetera. But outside of surgery, what do you like to do outside of the OR, outside of academic medicine, surgery? A lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I love to play tennis. Um, so I play about four times a week, I would think. And um, I have you have you dodged uh, injuries uh, or do you get some of those throughout the years? Uh, I, so I've had, I torn my ACL. I've had mm. four operations on my knee. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm still able to, to do that. I play on, on hard shoe, on clay, so that it's a little bit more forgiving because you slide. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm very good at it, but I love it. And I have yeah. a great group of friends, tennis friends that, uh, that I enjoy uh, spending time with. And then uh, I, I have a Vespa, as I told you before, my, my Vespa. Uh, so I like to drive around in the Vespa. Um, and uh, I really enjoy uh, good food. Montreal has got some of the best food of anywhere in the world and the best value, particularly if you're paying with American dollars. So I want to, uh, to uh, I want to introduce you to some of that when you're in Montreal. I yeah, mean, we're gonna we're gonna, gonna that's gonna pain, be right? yeah that's gonna be one of our our later questions as we talk a little bit about Sages yeah. Montreal, but but we we definitely start thinking of some some places you want to recommend because we're I'm gonna start putting reservations in and yes I am buying uh, Sharon yes <laughs> okay. looking forward to it <laughs> yeah um, what else we, we love to travel uh, and uh, I, I guess that fills up a lot of my time we love hockey. You can't you can't live in Montreal and not love hockey. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so I I, I do want to uh, hear a little bit more about you know I'm I'm sorry about your ACL. I, I tore my calf uh, last year playing uh, not even tennis pickleball. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, uh, realization that uh, you know um, our bodies don't do what we we think they 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 should do as as we you know advanced. So I, I was, you know, tennis is definitely one with a lot of, a lot of movements, a lot of quick, quick things that, that definitely I think is, is one of those ones I've heard has, has definitely high rates of injury. So you, you, you tore your calf at pickleball. Yes. Pickleball. That's, that's For real. A, I thought you were going to yeah. joke. No, that it, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's a dangerous sport. I'm telling you, and it, it's not even nearly as much as that. I, I mean, we got to throw some some color into this. I mean, yeah, yeah I, tore, I literally tore my calf playing pickleball. You I need was to warm in up. A, I know Cleveland's cold. You got to warm up before I these know, games. I know. I oh know. So, so I've been nervous to get back because I love tennis as well, but I've been nervous to get back to it just because of these injuries. So, so what? Uh, how, I'm assuming you were out for a while then with that ACL and surgery and everything, right? I mean, you were. So the, uh, the worst part of it is that my in initial operation, my first operation was about two weeks before we got uh, arthroscopy in our hospital. Yeah. So I had an open oh. meniscectomy. Um, oh. So I tore yeah. my ACL and, and my medial meniscus. Okay. And I decided I was just in practice about a year at that time, and I didn't want to take off the time to go through the ACL operation. So I, they repaired the, the meniscus open. And um, I, I wore a brace for a while, and then I, you know, I, I really wasn't functioning very well. So ultimately, I had to have it replaced. Mm. And uh, mm. so I did have it replaced, and then I retore the replaced one mm. while I was diving in uh, Great Barrier Reef. And wow. um, so that I was quite miserable when I should have yeah. been 
having a wonderful time and uh, came back, I had to be reoperated on. So it's been a, a series of things, but uh, it's all good now. I'm feeling well and I'm playing a lot. I've often tell tell my patients who've never had surgery that it it's tough to make it through life without having surgery. I, I've had multiple orthopedic myself, and it, it's just tough. I, I think whenever you meet a, an older patient who's not had surgery, like, well, you didn't quite make it. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a you know a way to break the ice a little bit when they're get really nervous, you know, but, um, it's nice to share with them like, Oh, then you're going to feel this. And then when the anesthesia kicks in, you'll feel that. <laughs> yeah. What I say about so, surgery, it's always better to give than to receive. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so we, we know that you've played the role of mentor, uh, for so many, uh, and you mentioned a few names, but if, uh, you know, give you a chance to kind of call out, you know, some of your mentors and, you know, their impact on you and making some of the decisions, you know, certainly to go into surgery and then to subspecialize. So yeah, why don't you share a little bit about some of your mentors? Uh, people that, that really influenced me, I, I guess the first was my, my mother's late brother, who was a anesthesiologist in upstate New York. And he was just kind of the, the epitome of uh, the type of person that I wanted to be. And that probably the person that convinced me that I wanted to be a doctor, just uh you know, wisdom, character, everything, despite the fact that he was an anesthesiologist, but um, he, he was, uh, he was special. And then um, in medical school, one of the most, um, I, I guess, transformative moments, I was, I did physiology before I started medical school, and I was at a lecture on respiratory physiology that was given by some guy that I didn't know, and it, it turned out he was a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon from Hopkins, that was doing a PhD in respiratory physiology at McGill. And he had just come back from Vietnam where he had been a, uh, a naval surgeon. And uh, his lecture was, was just fantastic. So after his lecture, I went to speak to him, introduced myself and asked him if he was looking for a summer student. And I wound up working in the lab uh, with him for the entire time that he, he was in Montreal. And he was uh, just uh, a terrific person and a great mentor. He went to finish his training at, uh, Hopkins and then went on, uh, on the faculty at Ohio State University. So um, the person that was his uh, immediate boss in, in Vietnam in the Navy was Larry Carey. And Larry Carey became chair of surgery uh, at, the Ohio State, at the Ohio State University, brought Brian Lowry, who was this, this guy uh, there. And then when I was looking for a place to do endoscopy, uh, I wound up uh, you know, speaking to Brian, he told me that they were missing a GI fellow and it would be perfect. Chris was going to do, Chris Ellison was going to do six months of, of GI and they were looking for someone else. And so Chris and I shared the position um, in, in the surgical residency and the, uh, the GI fellow position. So that was, uh, you know, that so both Brian Lowry and, uh, and Larry Carey had a, a huge impact on me. I mentioned uh, uh, Jim Thompson. And uh, you know, back home at McGill, probably the person that influenced me the most was uh, David Mulder, who was, uh, he's also a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, and a trauma surgeon. And he was the chair that hired me. And the thing about him was uh, if ever I went to him with an idea, even if it seemed, seemed crazy, he would let me take the ball and run with it. Uh, so, you know, uh, if we have time, I'll just I'll tell you the interesting story was one day I was walking through the hospital on a Saturday 
I saw a light on in his office and I knew there was nothing going on in thoracic in the OR. So I, I went in to see what he was doing. And he was sitting there with a guy that I didn't know. And this guy was a, a surgeon from Germany, Hans Troidel, and they were writing a book on surgical research. So they invited me to join them for lunch. And Hans Troidel had just done his first operation called laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And um, wow. he was telling me about this operation. And he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you come to Cologne, uh, stay in my home, and I'm going to teach you how to do this operation. And one day you'll be a famous surgeon. I so I went home, told my wife, I'm off to Germany. <laughs> and I went and uh, I was there for a week. Uh, I, I watched him and his group do uh, uh, eight lap coles and one lap appy. Came back. I, I went to Dr. Melder and I said, I, I want to do this. It's going to be huge. I said, okay, make a presentation to the board and see if they'll agree to buy the equipment. So I said, like, maybe you should make the presentation to, to the board. He said, no, I want you to do it. So I went to the board, uh, told them about this new operation. They said, fine. They bought the equipment. And the amazing thing was if, if they wouldn't have acted on it, then it would have taken six months to get the equipment because there wasn't enough um, inventory to meet the demand as it was taking off. So that's uh, another key influence in my life. That's a I, I met story. Yeah, I met him uh, last year at the uh, Central Surgical, he and his yeah. wife, and just delightful. And you could see how he would be very uh, supportive uh, of someone coming up. So that's great to hear about it here. I, I figured his name might come up, but I didn't know your, your link. Yeah, I met him this year. So is that how you came to be involved in minimally, minimally invasive surgery? Yes, it is. Wow. I mean, I had been doing endoscopy. Uh, you know, so I had been, you know, doing uh, kind of image guided sur surgery. I, I had actually done laparoscopy uh, a few times without the camera, like early in my practice for diagnosis of abdominal pain and things like that. And I would often do it with a gynecologist because uh, they were using it for, you know, various uh, gynecology reasons. But uh, that's how I, I got started with uh, laparoscopic surgery. And I'm always curious surgeons of your generation that went from open to a completely new technology. Um, did you embrace it because you're interested in technology? Are you uh, someone that is just open to new ideas or like what made it that for you to do that instead of, I don't know, do some other specialty? So I could talk about this for long. I always loved uh, technology and I loved innovation. And I had, you know, as I told you, I, I started with uh, flexible endoscopy. Um, when when the laser came, I I trained in, in the use of the laser. I was using the laser through the flexible endoscope for ablation of esophageal and rectal tumors, and also for uh, certain types of bleeding lesions. Uh, I, I liked it. I uh, when I was in Cleveland for uh, Jeff Ponsky's Feshrift, um, oh I told a story about how I invented the peg tube. Uh, but when I True story. And when I submitted the article, he had <laughs> I was also there. I was also at that. That was a great, there, great yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had already had his published and I had developed a peg tube for use in, in animals as part of a kind of a research protocol. So no one was really interested in my peg tube. But I was it just tells you that I always liked uh, technology and how it can enable us to do what we wanted to do. It was a peg tube. It was a peg pig tube, right? It was a pig. That's pig. Right. pig it was pig a pig pig pig, pig peg yeah. tube. Yes. Nobody. <laughs> They wanted human peg tubes, but not pig pegs tubes. That's right. That's great. 
That's the third Ohio reference in this. Uh, I think it's already. even more. Just... Yeah. <laughs> so, so you ultimately uh, subspecialized in in GI minimally invasive surgery, and and I guess this uh, surgeon was correct in that you you became uh, famous uh, because you became an international leader in minimally invasive uh, surgery and its education. Um, that that's really kind of I think where we're going to take the next section. But but what inspired you to kind of narrow your clinical focus? in this way? So I, I, you know, I always wanted to be a GI surgeon, but it was hard to develop a busy practice in GI surgery because the gastroenterologists were not happy that I was doing endoscopy. And I was a bit frozen out early part of my practice. Uh, and that, you know, that changed after laparoscopy came because they had no one else to refer their cases to and the patients wanted to have laparoscopy. Mm. So I, it was my goal always to, to focus on GI surgery. And then as, and we didn't have colorectal surgeons in our hospital in those days. So I did a lot of colorectal, but then as we built uh, our colorectal group, I, I went more and more to foregut surgery, which I, I really, really enjoyed. And at kind of the latter part of my career, I, I did a lot of uh, foregut surgery and a lot of procedures for the first time, um, certainly by, by laparoscopy, which was fun. Uh, but I, I would like to, you know, uh, I, I would like to call it somebody else in terms of the education part. And it's, you know, you talk about how your life or your career can change abruptly. But I was program director and one of the, one of our residents, um, her name is Anna DeRosis, came to me and said she would like to, to, to do uh, her master's uh, working with me and she'd like to do it in education. I said, I, I don't know anything about education. I, I really didn't. Uh, so we sat down and we thought about it and um, we were giving courses. So every month we would take 24 surgeons from around the country and we would teach them laparoscopy. And at the end of the course, we would give them a certificate that they would go home with and they'd be able to practice, get you know credentials to practice in their hospital. But it was very clear that there's some people that you would watch because we were running animal labs in those days. They were just awful. But we didn't have the. We didn't have I'm the glad right you said to, it. I'm glad you said it. you could just see it. You're just sometimes you're just like, oh, that's, that's just, right. That's you, just you, you know it when you see it. But the, the problem is that how do you decide that you're going to give one person a certificate and someone else not? So I said, Anna, what we have to do is we have to develop a test so that we can we, we could test uh, people, see that they have a minimum level of skills. And if we could weed out those people that we thought were really bad and have some you know, criteria to do that, then, then we're going to be doing a good thing. So uh, Anna really was the person that developed the original part of the FLS box trainer as part of her, her master's program. And unfortunately, Anna died just a few years ago. It was a very tragic oh. young, young woman. And, oh. but, you know, uh, as much of um, impact I may have had on her as my, her program director, she uh, had the, more impact on me and on my career certainly uh, than, than I have ever given her credit for. So she yeah. was a re resident then at that time? She was a resident then, yeah. Mm. That's fascinating. I've seen her name a lot, um, but it's it's really unique that that's how it all started. Yeah. Because your, your courses, you're basically validating or associating yourself with the future performance of these surgeons. Well, I mean, that's what drove us, certainly. Yeah. And, so the interesting thing was that uh, when I was in Texas, I met, uh, met Bruce Shermer, former president of uh, Sages, who he had been, he was a resident at Duke at the time. 
And uh, we were at, at the Southern Surgical and got a chance to get to know each other. Um, and when Lap, Lap Coley came, he invited me to Virginia to, uh, to teach a course. And we were talking and he said, you have to join SAGES. And I, I didn't know anything about SAGES. And I said, no, I, don't, mm. I can't, can't go to another organization. He said, well, why don't you come to our meeting and talk about the education, your, your work you're doing and you know, give an invited talk. So I talked about the work that Anna had done and um, you know, at, at one of the, we had an educator's lunch as part of the program. And then uh, the Bruce introduced me to Nat Soper and Lee Swanstrom and Jeff Peters. And they're talking about this FLS project they wanted to work on. They needed yeah. a hands-on part of it. And would I you know, work with them on, on developing it? And of course I joined Sages and uh, never looked back. It was the greatest opportunity. Uh, so I want to give a call out to Bruce for bringing me into Sages. Yeah, Bruce has been uh, mentioned a couple of times. I think he's yeah, had an yeah. influence on getting people involved in Sages. Yeah. Uh, multiple people that have already mentioned that story. That's really, really fantastic. Yeah, you, well, I you, think, oh, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you hit one of our one of our questions right on the right on the head. And and I, I think to follow up, simulation is is always kind of a, a moving target in surgical education. I'm actually doing an FLS simulation lab on Tuesday. So this is very timely to speak to you. And um, despite having some standardized programs, it, it still remains quite variable, uh, especially when you think of it in a global sitting, setting as well. And uh, you, you may not remember this, uh, but I reached out to you in 2011 as I was training, uh, planning a trip to Gabon uh, to do the fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery uh, curriculum with the residents of the, the PACS program, which is the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. And you, you allowed, allowed me, and I took the program there and we started to integrate it into their curriculum. And it's now an ongoing part of their curriculum for the residents there. Um, and I've been back to Gabon in Nigeria a few times and, and I always stick to what you put together with FLS. I still have some of the old videos with you. So you, you know, it's, it's quite, quite great. And, but just, you know, telling us a little bit about, you know, FLS kind of, you know, 2.0 and how it, you know, is going to advance and kind of move from what we now do every day to, you know, the next, you know, the global setting as well. Well, uh, you know, to really understand FLS 2.0, you probably should speak to Melina Vasilio, who's championing that that project. And, you know, it, when we developed FLS 1, we didn't have any e educational background, like none of us did. We knew what the need was. We knew what the content was. We really had trouble finding people with expertise in validation because it was going to be a high stakes exam. Uh, we worked a bit with Karen Hoffman at USC at the time, uh, and she really helped us because she had done some work for uh, the national board exam. And um, But now we have a whole cohort of people that are formally trained in education, and Melina uh, has several of them on the FLS committee. And they're, the revamp of, of, of FLS will really be predicated on a deep understanding of educational theory. It, the validity evidence is going to be, you know, at, at a level much higher. So I think that, you know, there, there's lots of lots going on. The whole blueprint, the, uh, you know, the concept is going to be much more competency based. So it's very exciting. And I think that, you know, it's in good hands. 
But I have to tell you something else though. Like, you know, now my day job, is, a lot of it is spent in the simulation center, which I really, really love. But the technology out there with um, mixed reality, virtual, augmented, uh, and mixed reality, it's unbelievable. And I think that, you know, I just saw uh, an example today of technology where you don't know whether you're in a real world or a virtual world. It, it, it blew my mind. And I think wow. that right now that's quite expensive. But uh, we have someone in our lab that could make a digital twin of any person. And I could operate on this hologram of a person while someone else with a headset can follow along on the real person. And, you know, the, the ability to teach using technology, it, it's just accelerating at a pace that, you know, it, it's staggering. So right now we're working on, on 2.0, but really in a year or two, the technology will be so advanced that we'll be able to remotely train people, uh, you know, who can afford a headset at the price point of an iPad or a laptop and anywhere in the world. And you don't have to go to Gabon or Nigeria. You'll be able to, you know, to ship them or loan them, or they could buy a few headsets and uh, you can instruct them on a simulator or on even a real patient, you'll be able to support them. So oh, it is so exciting. It, it is so much fun. That and is so, so exciting. exciting. Yeah. As much as I like that, uh, you know, 25 plus hour journey across <laughs> yeah. the continent and back over, it'd be great to just sit here and do it too. <laughs> yeah, and how many times can you go to a good Yeah, I mean, it takes, you could do it, yeah, you know, it takes, takes a while to get there. Uh, well, Kevin's pretty dedicated. You go every year, right? At least once a year. Yeah, I usually go once a year. Yeah, yeah. once a year. Well, it's because, you know, you don't mind leaving Cleveland. <laughs> That's true. I always go in the winter. That's oh, right. Oh, <laughs> Jerry's on my oh, side now. Yeah, That's true. I always go in like November, December, January. I get the heck out of here. <laughs> yeah. I can you're feel also, There's also video-based assessment, right? So you're, besides yep. the hands-on, there's... Can you maybe give us a little bit about what's going on with video-based assessment in surgical skills education? So, um, you know, the, the, the idea is that one of, you know, one of the opportunities that image-guided surgery provides us is that we have a camera, whether it's a flexible endoscope, whether we have a, a rigid endoscope, whether we have a robotic uh, imaging system, we have, we have, we have a, an ability to capture what we do. And we have not really maximized our opportunities, both for teaching or evaluation of what goes on in the operating room. And you know, and I don't have to tell any, any surgeon that what we do in the operating room really matters. You construct an anastomosis poorly, it's more likely to leak. If you don't fix a hernia properly, it's more likely to recur. I mean, yes. what we do matters and we don't capture what we do at all. We have an operative report, which is, uh, it, I guess it's, it's an optimistic view of the way the operation went in the eyes of the surgeons, but it, it, it is not a very useful Often a report. template now, you know, it's yeah. not, now it's now it's not even, it's just a template now. Yeah. So, so it's really not, not very um, useful to, to harness rich information and be able to use that information as a way of assessing quality and, um, and to use it for teaching. But now I think we, you know, with the use of, with the ability to record operations routinely and with the type of processing power that computers have and the algorithms that artificial intelligence and computer vision offer, the, the, um, this opaque uh, part of care that's in the operating room, I think will become much more transparent 
and it will be a way that we assess our trainees and ourselves because uh, I, you know, I think it's our responsibility to the public to make sure that people that do surgery are skilled, remain skilled throughout their career and continue to aspire to improve their performance like any elite performer would. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't have a professional musician or an athlete that would, the day they, they get their first contract, uh, stop training or aspire to continue to improve. But we've been a little remiss in surgery. And I think the idea of video-based assessment in a formative way, not not in a you know, punitive, not yeah. in a punitive way, but, but it will be uh, a powerful tool in, in improving what what we're able to do and learning from one another. Yeah, and, and that makes so much sense. And I I was you know it was a great session last year at Sages with the video based assessment session that you uh, you co chaired and and I, I know that a lot of research is being done that and you know we're enrolling in a validated surgical skills education program with video-based assessment can actually translate to better patient outcomes. And I assume this was one of the key aspects of integrating so much of what you've built into the American board of surgery qualifications is, uh, you know, how, how did that kind of relationship develop? Well, you're probably asking like the wrong person, right? I'm a Canadian, and, you know. I know, but the, the uh, they, yeah, that, that's yeah. true. That's true. But, uh, you know, but you're, you know, a lot of the programs were integrated. I mean, that's what we do now. I mean. So, you know, if you want to learn something from how um, simulation became impactful in aviation, it was legislating that simulation was mandatory for all pilots, right? And that that made the simulation industry thrive and it, and it you know, reduce the number of uh, crashes and things like that uh, in, in aviation. Well, you know, our goal, once we uh, developed FLS and, and had uh, data that that's, um, supported its validity was to mandate it. And that was really, I, I, I would say that it's probably Lee Swanstrom strong, you know, he felt the most strongly about it. I was a little reluctant, um, but uh, he felt very strongly that the FLS should be uh, a mandated thing. And we, uh, we went to the board and it was iterative. The first time we went to the board, essentially they, they didn't show great enthusiasm. And I remember uh, trying to get the American College on side and uh, Jeff Peters and I presented to the Board of Regents and we really were, poor, I wouldn't say poorly treated, we were not warmly received. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> very you know, diplomatic. Yeah, That's a very yeah. Canadian way of saying uh, that you were poorly yeah. treated. I love that. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> the people uh, is in that room were not all that enthusiastic about uh, people assessing them uh, by this test. But ultimately, we kept getting data and getting data, and uh, we went back to the to the Board of Regents, and um, they they, to their credit, uh, decided to support us. And I think having the college uh, on side was a very powerful ally. And then we went back to um, the American board and I believe that Jeff Ponsky was actually the uh, uh, president at that time. Or, uh, yeah, that's what the right. Was. Yeah. They had a retreat the in, uh, in Sarasota in the winter time and uh, you know, reluctantly I went. And I'm uh, sure, I'm sure that was a tough, tough visit. And, yeah, <laughs> that was the data, and ultimately <laughs> they decided to come in uh, to mandate uh, FLS at, at the same time as uh, ATLS, and um, and I, I think that that was that was a huge uh, and brave move by by the board. So when um, flexible endoscopy became you know an important area where we wanted to demonstrate that surgeons 
um, should, should get privileged, not just because we say so, but because they showed um, the, that the quality of the work, the quality of their endoscopy was uh, at a standard that, you know, uh, that is respectable. Uh, we worked on developing the FES model that was led by, uh, by Jeff Marks and Brian Duncan um, with, uh, with endoscopists. So, so that would agree on the same standards. And when that uh, you know, program was validated, then we went back to the board and were able to get their support for uh, FES. I, I think that is huge. And I, you know, I think it's a, it's a brave and bold step that the board took. But it, you know, if the board's responsibility is to protect the public and ensure that the people that take care of them are appropriately trained, then we have to show not only that we know things, but we actually can do things that we say we're, we can do. And what about well the Canadian Board of Surgery? How? So it, it's part of each program. So it's not mandated mm. within, at, the, you know, at the national level, but each program is part of the accreditation of the individual programs. At the, uh, the residents take FLS. Oh, got it, got it, got it. And then um, you, I just want to know like how you got into Sage's, Shermer did your, kind of got you involved and then you eventually became president. Yeah. So maybe you can kind of tell us, we, we're always encouraging our listeners who are Sage's members to get involved. Actually, uh, my first involvement stages was at the FLS committee. I, I worked at USC as my first job with Jeff Peters, who was there and Lee Sillen, and they got me involved with the FLS committee. That was my first foray into Sage's um, oh, Fun fact. That's work. a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, so how did you kind of go through the process and eventually become president? Uh, okay. So before I tell you that, I just need to tell you that Jeff Peters, former president, yeah was my intern when I was at Ohio State that year. What? <laughs> wow. Yes. Was, was he, was he a well-behaved yeah, was he, or? Was he a... I, would I, I would never say anything other than he's a perfect gentleman. <laughs> uh, we, we got reconnected. Even as an him. intern? Even as an intern? He, he did everything we asked of him. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and more. Yeah. He and Carl Zucker. I don't know if you remember Carl Zucker. He wrote one of the original books on laparoscopy. And they were my two interns and they were really two of the early uh, heroes in that, in that world. Anyways, uh, I got, um, I became a member of, of SAGES after that meeting and immediately got uh, involved in the FLS project. And then as the FLS committee was starting, you know, I was basically one of the co-chairs uh, and uh, you know, went on to become chair of the FLS committee um, and just got involved. I mean, we, we would have, a ton of papers from, from McGill on at the Sages meeting. I had some really good residents. Um, you may have heard of Leanne Feldman um, and uh, Melina Vasiliu. Yes, and, of course. Uh, Bergman. And we had uh, just a whole group of, of great people in the lab. And we, you know, we went from like nothing to having like 10 papers on every year. Uh, Alan O'Kranick, um, you know, also came through and uh, we, uh, you know, just got involved and got involved in the program. And people said it, it was a meritocracy. It truly is. Uh, I, I didn't know any people really well before I started, but I was really warmly received. And I never felt that, you know, as a Canadian, that my opportunities were lessened. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. Leanne was our one of our earlier guests, uh, yeah. having been just a recent past president of the Sages 
um, society and we hope to have more Canadians and less Ohioans in the future. Yes, yes, <laughs> definitely has got to balance out for sure. <laughs> so, so you ended up, you were president just about a decade, a little, little less than a decade ago. What, what were your goals for the society at that time? And then how have you seen sages evolve uh, since then? So around that time, um, I was chair of surgery and we had a chair of anesthesia, uh, a man by the name of Franco Carley, who uh, we became good friends. And Franco and I started a fellowship in minimally invasive anesthesia. And we, we co-funded it. And, and we uh, started to look at how we could make the, um, the trajectory of, of care for our patients that we were operating on um, as quick as possible, uh, as uh, easy as possible. And so we wouldn't want to hit them with the same hammer for an MIS procedure as we would for an open uh, procedure. And so how could we modify this? And he, uh, he introduced us to Henrik Kellett, who, uh, who was a Danish uh, surgeon who really developed the, the concept of what was called at that time, fast track surgery. Um, we got, um, Leanne got very interested in, in surgical recovery and how to measure recovery. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I was president of SAGES was to look at the concept of enhanced recovery after surgery. And, uh, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, look, we're gonna, we're, we're doing a lot in the operating room to um, mitigate the injury of surgery, but all the other things with opioids, with um, you know, fasting, with tubes, drains, et cetera, we, were, you know, we still hadn't learned which we should do, what we shouldn't do, how quickly we could ambulate people, uh, how quickly we could feed people after GI surgery. So um, I really wanted Sages to get involved uh, in, that, uh, in, in that area. And um, Leanne was really the, the person that was going to be the point person on that project. And I think it's really evolved and it's, you know, I think all, everyone in the world now is talking about enhanced recovery after surgery in some form is just, you know, part of the way we care for surgery. So that, you know, that was really my, um, my main goal and my time as president to, to help uh, Leanne and her group really who took ownership of this program, uh, bring that into SAGES and through SAGES to, uh, to influence the way we care for patients. Yeah, that's ERAS, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, which, yeah. you know, we have it for all different operations, yeah. right? We have it for right. colorectal, we have one for hernia surgery. Yeah. 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 Really so, um, was SADIS involved in guidelines before, your, before you became president as well? Or did you yeah. kind of spearhead all the guidelines? No, guidelines that, actually uh, preceded me. Okay. Um, yeah, so I don't, I, I can't take any credit for that. You don't take credit for anything. You're too humble. Uh, yes, uh, I this mean, is true. This is, it's I like, yeah, I'm the wrong person, except I was involved with all these things. Aww. We got to hear you say a couple things that you, I mean, come on, Jerry, you're a stud. Uh, yeah, I, I, he is. I, I don't mind you saying it, Kevin, or okay. you know, I, don't, I don't have to say it. No. Yeah, that's okay. Very sweet and Canadian yeah. of you. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, I do want you to, you know, um, give us, uh, some stuff that you will kind of uh, take ownership of. And that is in our next section of our Sages Story podcast, which we call We Are the Surgeons. We are the Sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you cry. Have you had a 
good time tonight. So each guest is asked to share their most memorable or salacious memory of the annual Sages stories. I'm sorry, of the annual Sages meeting. What's your story from the meeting? So I, I, you, I would not say anything salacious because it's just not in, in my personality, of course. Um, you would be the first, but okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I guess like most people, the, uh, the thing that hits you most when you go to your first Sages meeting is the sing-off. And, uh, you know, having been at surgical meetings that were somewhat uh, more formal, um, you know, uh, the, the big uh, social event would be a black tie dinner and a, you know, 30 piece orchestra and no one would be dancing. Like, you know, that would be like the social event where yep. there would be a speaker or something, uh, you know, to go to Sages and to just see the, um, the honestly, the humility of, of the people in leadership. And, when I first started in the organization, they, you know, like everybody else, the people in leadership were big names in, in, in surgery. And immediately, immediately, uh, you know, they, they were brought down to earth and they, they were accepting of people and the ability to just uh, get to know people um, in, in a level, you know, at a level of informality that Sages provides. Um, that, that was, the, you know, the culture that I think is so rich. And, you know, I, I hope that as meeting, you know, there's a lot of talk now, what's the future of these meetings and, you know, the friendships and relationships you, you develop through these organizations are, they're, they're one of the greatest parts of, of my career. Uh, yeah. And I look back, uh, you know, the friendships and, you know, when we didn't see everybody for the couple of years of, uh, of COVID, it made you appreciate what you got when we were able to get all, all together again. And I uh, see, so, you know, some of the, my, my closest friends in the world are, are, are people that I met through Sages, you know, the, the warmth and sincerity of, of them. It's different when I'm with the same people at different organizations, people just act different. And I, I hope that Sages will maintain this informality and the approachability of people and the opportunity for young people to, to bring a good idea and, you know, to take the ball and run with it, so to speak, because that, that's what makes, uh, makes this, this organization special. So I don't mean salacious, but I just think that, you know, it, you, know you, you are now the guardians of the organization. And I, I think that it's really important that the culture of the organization matches the, the membership and is attractive to the membership and makes people want to come to the meeting. Um, and I would encourage people to bring their families. I, I mean, Karen has come to almost every Sages meeting, like, you know, for 25 years, maybe she's missed like two or three during that period of time. And she knows every one of my friends. Um, she knows many of their spouses. She knows many of their kids. Uh, you know, we've had them to our, our home. It, it's just a special relationship. She understands my day job as, as a result. So I, I think that, you know, it's really, really important that we, you know, we make people want to come to the meetings and feel that there's something about a Sages meeting that will always be different from other organizations, which are wonderful. I mean, I belong to a lot of them, but you know, Sages is, is very special in my heart. Yeah, I think we all share exactly what you said. Um, it's also very unique to have major, major surgeons in our in our field, such as yourself, just you know, mingling amongst us normal people, 
little people. Um, I feel like you've mentored, taught, promoted so many young surgeons. I feel like that's been one of your strengths is your ability to kind of reach out and influence each newer generation. So based on what you said, what's your message to, to the younger surgeons about A, their involvement in stages and B, the future of surgery as a whole? So, you know, to the young surgeons that really um, follow your passion, get, find something in your practice that you really, um, that, that you really love, that you're really uh, passionate about. And SAGES is the organization to take that to. Uh, also look ahead uh, rather than back. Look, you know, look at um, the way that the surgical practice is evolving, but also look at, you know, technology, understand what's going on in engineering uh, and, and ask yourself, how can we take what's going on in, in some of these other fields and, and make what we do in surgery um, even better, safer, uh, less painful, quicker recovery, think through the patient's uh, eyes. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to do that as a young surgeon because you're, you're kind of close to it and you're, I think you're very open uh, to, to technology and innovation, but bring it, like bring it to an organization because you can't do it on your own. Um, the other thing that this evolved over, over the time that I've been at Sages is that Sages used to be an outlaw organization to some extent, but over time, a lot of the Sages leadership have become leaders in, in American surgery in every sense, right? Whether it's Joe Beisky at the board, whether, you know, it's my role as chair of the board of the regents of the college, uh, you know, in, in American surgical, like in all these organizations, uh, Sages people have, have gone into leadership roles. So the people in the room are now leaders of American surgery and having access to them in an environment like Sages provides the young people an opportunity to get involved in really exciting and important projects. I have a question for you. I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. So it seems to me we're doing a really good job with FLS and even robotic education as a, as a kind of a next generation of that. Um, do you feel like we're going to have to eventually have some type of validation for open surgical skills? I, I don't think we're going to need necessarily to have a validation, but we may need to rethink the way we educate people and, and the way we evaluate all our all our trainees and ourselves. Um, you know, it, it may it may have to evolve. Um, we will always be doing open surgery or, you know, for the foreseeable future, uh, certainly, and we can't ignore that. But I, I, you know, I haven't found our residents struggling doing open surgery because they do a lot of things like, you know, compatibility stuff, transplant stuff, big, you know, uh, trauma procedures. Uh, so they're pretty comfortable uh, in the abdomen. I, I, you know, they may know, they won't know the nuances of doing an ulcer operation. Like, I mean, I did 100, 150 ulcer operations my first year in practice, believe it or not. It, it was very prevalent then. Um, you know, they don't know how to do a difficult duodenal stunt, perhaps, or they may not know how to get exposure for every area of the abdomen. But um, they're not struggling taking out a gallbladder open if they could do, uh, you know, a, a pancreatectomy or a liver resection or a transplant. They're pretty comfortable in the abdomen. So, uh, you know, I, I think our residents in general are very well trained still. Uh, they're very talented people. 
uh, and their their open surgery skills are not uh, are not worrisome. Um, but you know we have to we have to still be careful to ensure that they get proper training in everything that they're going to do when they go out there. I mean, I think that's a fantastic question, and I mean, certainly you're you're dealing with uh, la creme de la creme at, at McGill uh, of of residents, and I but I think there is definitely going to be uh, some concern when you have programs where your your maybe your access to those big operations are are less and and especially as the body habitus has changed and, and there are a lot of nuances that i think are going to become an issue and i think some are concerned about you know the training in open surgery i've actually started to record even even open operations for for that very reason yeah. just to have you know the the technical aspects uh, readily available to go through because it just, we don't do it as much. So that's right. Well, you have been a very gracious host as we expected. And, and most of all, uh, as always, you've been inspiring and have provided a fresh take on everything we do as surgeons. Next year's SAGE's annual meeting, we've been alluding to it is from March uh, 29th through April 1st in your hometown, uh, Montreal, Quebec. Uh, this must be very exciting for you. Um, I hope all of our SAGES members who are listening plan to attend. Um, and then of course we yes. wanna know any tips on what we will be uh, expecting to do in Montreal in March. Or so, what we should be wearing. Cause I'm from a place where there's very little Warm they don't clothing. Own, they don't own parkas or uh, uh, snowshoes in uh, Los Angeles. Definitely no snowshoes. <laughs> Hopefully, you won't need snowshoes, but you will need. Uh, you will need to layer up a little bit. It, you know, it, yesterday it was uh, it was almost eighty degrees in Montreal, which is like crazy wow. for the end of wow. October. Um, maybe we'll be lucky and we'll have a, a hot spell while you're there. But I, I want to tell you, Montreal is the second largest French-speaking city in the world. And it, it is a little bit like being in Paris, but uh, in North America. Love it. Um, you know, people will not have trouble navigating if they don't speak French, but you will be uh, able to really enjoy the French culture. As I said, the, the, the food is fantastic. Uh, there's lots of things to do. And um, there's a whole underground city that uh, radiates from the uh, headquarters hotel, from the Fairmont Hotel. So that you can walk literally miles and go to places, uh, you know, without coming uh, up for air <laughs> up to the surface. Uh, something I've special heard about that, yeah. Try to go to a hockey game. Um, you know, watching the Montreal Canadiens play at the at the Bell Center where they play is like uh, you know going to Yankee Stadium to watch mm. you know, a baseball game or Fenway or you know it's one of the iconic sports venues uh, in the world. Um, there will be spring skiing for those people that, that want to ski. Uh, how, it's far? Also, um, how far to ski? How far to about, ski? Well, the closest would be about 40, 45 minutes. Okay. Um, right. Yeah. It's also sugaring off season. So uh, Quebec, the province of Montreal sits in, is um, the largest producer of maple syrup in the world. And sugaring off is the time of year in the spring where the sap runs. And they have these cabins that you could go to where they uh, you could... You could make make maple syrup and have a traditional um, sugar shack meal, probably as unhealthy as anything you could possibly. Yeah, describe. that sounds. That but it's sounds an amazing. It's, it's diabetogenic. Amazing <laughs> exactly. 
Diabetes. 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 <laughs> so, uh, so that's a fun thing. Uh, Montreal also, it, you, you can get out of the city to beautiful uh, lakes and forests and all that with, within an hour. So there's lots to do. And I, I welcome anybody to contact me if they want some ideas or something I special. I cannot wait. Yeah. What, a, what about some uh, restaurant names that you want to drop while, we're, uh, while we have you too? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, am I allowed to do this? But there, there yeah, are some incredible. Sure. So, yes. um, Absolutely. There's a restaurant. They're going to sponsor the next stage of story. Yeah, exactly. They're going to be like, oh, we got we got 18 uh, reservations just today. Yeah. Uh, So there's a wonderful restaurant called Le Filet, F-I-L-E-T, means the net, actually. It's across from a tennis uh, facility. It's it's kind of a a seafood, Asian um, fusion type restaurant. It's amazing. Um, There's uh, Milos, which is uh, one of the best fish restaurants in the world, and they have they started in Montreal. They have branches now in New York, Las Vegas, uh, Athens. Uh, it, it is is fantastic. Um, there are some uh, obviously wonderful steak restaurants. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to take the uh, the president, the past presidents, for dinners. We'll have somewhere really special. Aww. There's a great place called Europea. Um, it's a Roulet Chateau restaurant. That's uh, it, it's a real show. I mean, every course is uh, is like a work of art. Um, there are many others. Uh, there's uh, some, I mean, literally uh, one of the best Syrian restaurants I've ever eaten at called Damas, D-A-M-A-S. I had, um, I was there actually. I was in Montreal last, uh, yeah, uh, a couple months ago and I, I went to that. So yeah, you're right. Did you like it? Amaz- oh yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, wow. we took Sally. Uh, Sally Matthews was in Montreal um, as part of the planning and we went there for dinner with her. It was great. Yeah, that was amazing. So looking forward to it. So looking forward to it. Jerry, I really appreciate your time. We both appreciate it. Um, for our listeners, if you want to learn from the best and meet Dr. Jerry Freed, please attend the annual Sages meeting. That's this March 29th to April 1st. And make sure you say hi or bonjour to Jerry when you see him there. Please and do. make sure uh, Kevin takes you out to uh, Europe. Damas. Or no, Damas. Europea. Or Damas. 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 I just want to thank the two of you for doing this. I think it's it's really fantastic. It's really fun. I hope people enjoy it. Um, but I, you know, I think having a chance to get to know the people within our organization is such wonderful people. It's it's a gift. So I it's a gift. It. Oh, you. it's been a gift. We we agree. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you so much, okay. Jerry. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.